Welcome to the Handshake Deal with Jason Roberts, a podcast about real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and life. I'm your lesser seen, lesser heard host, Alexander Prince. To learn more about us and the podcast, you can visit edendevgroup.com backslash podcast. That's edendevgroup.com backslash podcast. Today, on our very first episode, I'll be speaking with my co-host, Jason Roberts, about his entrepreneurial journey, how he landed in real estate, and what he's doing today with his firm, Eden Development Group. Excited for you to listen along. All right, Jason. We are good to go. I think uh, if you want to just kick us off again, talking about background how your career started or how you got your way into real estate. I think that's a good kicking off point. Okay, great. Well, um, I got started in real estate kind of by accident. I was a senior in college and I was a assistant manager of Walgreens uh, at that time and making thirteen seventy five an hour, wearing the vest behind the counter, you know, and checking the coupons and, you know, escorting everybody to the pharmacy. And so, uh, that's kind of what it was. We went to job fair in college and that was one of the best, highest paying jobs in college. And I remember me and my good friend Sasha were the uh, only two people from our university that got recruited by Walgreens that year. So we were, we were thought we were very special. And so, um, you know, wearing the best every day and knocking that out, you know, walking on your feet, and, you know, stacking the aisles. We learned a lot, but it was also just kind of a calculation of, how am I going to get rich uh, doing this? And so, well, uh, in that meantime, my father-in-law, uh, I was engaged by wife, and I was, uh, he said, hey, I think I'd like to maybe help me sell some of my life. We don't have enough sales guys, and maybe help me, and I'll pay for your gas, and I'll pay for your ads. Maybe you could just, I'll help you write them, and you could show some property because you know it's not making thir- much money at 13 cents an hour and uh, i said well sure sure i'll do that for you sure happy to do it and he goes uh and a th- little i know at the time he was kind of basically seeing if i would be interested in doing his business which was a way of developing that time I mean, he he built condos built townhomes he construction guy real estate owned his own brokerage company everything and uh, it's just online development so, so it was uh in the summer or going into and uh, I went out there and I went to show this property and I had shown this property. I'd answered the phone for three weeks and people stood me up and nobody would show up. And then this property was stupid property. And I was like, this has got a power line going through that I can crack. I could basically cook my eggs underneath this power line. This property is horrible, right? Well, who's going to buy this? Nobody. So I'm just wasting my time. And so finally, uh, one of this guy calls me and he goes out to look at the property and it was lot DD. I still remember it was like yesterday, and uh, it was for $59,000, 10 acres underneath the power line, and had a lot of good trees on it, and uh, he could build a house whenever he wanted, and it was a pretty simple process, so I showed him the four corners, and I was kind of frustrated, I was put out, and I was like, here's the four corners of the property, you want to buy it or what? And I was kind of a jerk, and he goes, yeah, and he pulled out $3,500 in cash right there and gave it to me, that was his down payment, and I was like, Oh my God, what, what is he doing? Like, I don't even know how to fill out the contract. And I'm like, I convinced him, just give me your $3,500 and then I'm going to come back and meet you with your paperwork all filled out for you. He said, okay, sure, no problem. 
So <laughs> I took his money and I went back and I had to figure out how to do the real estate contract because I wasn't paying attention for the past three weeks. I was just trying to show people property. And I divided the $3,500 by $13.75 an hour. And I said, if I work out here in the sun, how many hours do I have to work? You know, $3,500 divided by $13.75. It came out to 254 hours. And I was like, okay, that's well. Let's divide that by 40 hours a week because that's what we're doing at the at the Walgreens. That's 6.36 weeks at 40 hour weeks. And so I said, okay, if I can sell one more property, I can make the same money I would make working six weeks wearing the best sport in the aisles, you know? And I was like, this is, and I said, how many more properties are there available? So I'm just doing some simple math. And there are like 15 more properties to sell. There's a total of $120,000 to be available left. And I was like, okay, nobody telling me I need to get a promotion. There's nobody like above me. I don't mean, think there's not even really anybody out here in the country. And I just got to sit here and answer my phone and I can sell property. So I was like, okay, this is nothing else I know can make me 120 grand. At that point, right? It's money and autonomy and light bulbs are going off like crazy. I'm like, this is where it's at. So I sit out there for that summer and I sell the rest of the development out besides a few properties. I make $86,000 in like maybe eight weeks. And this is while you're still in college or is this? Yeah, it's my my senior year of college. I was doing 21 hours of school that summer too. And so, um, and I was like, okay, so I, I wanted to read every real estate and I didn't care about school anymore at all. I was like, this is for so long, how do you becoming and going to med school, etc. What do you have to do to get up there? Right. And, uh, this, I was like, wait a minute, making a hundred grand in a summer, I could probably make 300 grand if I worked the whole year. And at this point, starting salary coming out of college is probably on average. 45 off me 40,000. And again, I just was like, how's that going? How am I going to become a millionaire doing that? And it's, I'm not mad at it. It's just adding up. And, uh, when I was just in everything off of me and how hard I was going to work. And I knew that I wasn't going to be the smartest guy. I wasn't going to be the best oral surgeon or medical doctor, but I knew I could probably be the fast, like things I could improve on. And so if something really to people knowing the product and really changed, I would say my complete career from that forward. And uh, I was very fortunate for father-in-law to show me by, you know, letting it be my idea, my accident, and wasn't pushing on me. And it just, that's, the numbers just added up. And it was uh, it, something that you could place enough effort behind it. You could make some things. Old things usually happen a lot better than you would in any other job. So that was, uh, that's how we got the first sale, first conversion. Jason's foray into real estate. It's the first first leg, right? I mean, absolutely. And again, I mean, I learned a lot by that first sale. That first sale taught me to think that, you know, every person values their paradise, their treasure, their property, their dream differently. And I was 
like this guy probably worked to save up that $3,500. And this was his option to capture that dream, that property. For me, I was like, as an airlines, it wasn't, a, you know, a, even though I couldn't afford anything to buy anything, it just wasn't my type of property. And I, I realized that, you know, to have a, a good point of view on what people really want, it's really kind of the secret of real estate is really is just helping people find what that picture in their head or, or just you're matching up the product with the person's real desires or what they can actually afford what they want. I think people have difficulty too with if your idea of paradise doesn't match up with what someone else's does, kind of struggle to get behind selling that set or whatever it might be. Whereas you're here to say like, I'm no one to judge whether or not this is my paradise. If it's your paradise, I'm happy to be the one to give it to you. And it's, it's like a lot, a lot of things in sales. Now you can look back and say, you know, if you, you could be the guy, that's pushing the product and you could push it on them into something that they don't want to do or didn't seek out to do that day where this guy had made a phone call he called me he had read the ad in the paper driven an hour to meet me like this was something probably been looking for for a long time and when i realized like when you really truly just do or match that up to where you're not selling anything you're just more guiding people that is best for them, but also buyers are. That's where software sales, right? And big tenant there is you can't tell somebody something that they don't want, right? They're going to have a, you try to push a product on them, you might get your sale up front, but they're never going to renew. They're going to be unhappy. It's not really what you're trying to do in the end game. It, it, again, it, it's, a, it's a short lifespan, right? You, you're trying to force square peg in a round hole and being people and just being you know uh real thoughtful and it really focusing your energy and your efforts on putting yourself in the other person's shoes uh, is the number one thing that i was naturally already good at i just didn't know how to monetize monetize that so we're talking in senior year of college, senior summer here, is this what you continue to go on to do after college as well? Were you doing land sales right out of college? Yeah, so we, uh, I had to graduate. Um, after this, I was I was tired of being broke. I had a little bit of taste of money, and I was like, I gotta get out of here. Yeah, you're like, no, no more Walgreens. Yeah, Walgreens is great. <laughs> you know, I still go there. I could be over CVS, but because of this new employment history, but, um, this is it. I'm done. Like I'm, I need to make a million bucks next year. Put the bar real high. Well, eighty grand in the summer. I mean, I've done some internships. We were looking at made eighty grand in the summer. Scuba diving, like welding jobs that kill one of every three welders. Right. Like snow crab fishing. I mean, we just we were me and Sasha were applying for these jobs. to us? Money, you know, just Central Texas. Yeah, it was it was very fortunate. Right. So. On to land sales after college. Did you do that for a chunk of time? Because I know you yeah. haven't been in real estate the whole time the last twenty years, have you? No. I mean, what we we what we did is uh, we within first six months we had our first land deal. So instead of just being the salesman, I was like, you got to be the owner. Let's find some land. And really not knowing any better, we made some offers on property, very low offers that made sense, and people accepted them. And so we had our first six acres. We cut it in five ten acre tracks. We sold one piece that paid for the whole thing, and the other four pieces were all profit. 
And so that was, again, being our father-in-law was our guide, kind of helping us stay in the fairway that we didn't do stupid stuff. And then we uh, did, you know, apartment locating because we thought that was a good idea. Um, that was an okay idea. It actually was a real pain in the rear, but um, it didn't lose money. It just wasn't great. And then we did house flipping and fixed foreclosures. We felt there was ever, you know, an HGTV show about it. And then uh, we were having a hard time finding deals because a lot of California money in 2004 and five was coming into Texas. And they were buying 100 acres or 200 acres for the same price per acre you could buy 10 acres for. There's just no arbitrage there. So we're just seeing money flying everywhere. Land values are going up like crazy, kind of like here. And we said, we can't buy that property and cut it up and sell it for more. So what are we going to do? So we're creative in finding foreclosures, finding Chapter 11 bankruptcies and things that had, had a lot of hair on it that you had to fix to build value. Really cool. We learned a lot. A lot of hard work, but we got some really good deals. And then uh, at that same time, we became private money lenders because we were like, well, we'll loan money on property because we get it. We're no banks would touch the land but then we we're like well we're going to charge at a 40 percent loan so heads they pay our interest rate well good tails they don't pay our interest rate before close we get the property 40 cents on the dollar makes sense and nobody got foreclosed everybody paid always paid us so i'm curious i think kind of look down upon asset classes like banks don't look on it. like what is your take on why i mean obviously it's something that you've spent a career making money on you know you think makes the banks stay away from you think it's an attractive investment opportunity well i mean i think before i used to think that banks didn't like it because they didn't understand it well now knowing what we know just how the banking world works and turns that uh there's no deposits with them like you loan the money out on the land but then you don't have any cash flow you're not growing corn or whatever else you're not doing factors so there's deposits with that in a bank. bank always has to be very careful with how much money they have in deposits. And so without USDA government financing or some type of support there, a bank, this is a loan that doesn't really produce a ton of income. Now they're different. That's different. That was for our area in central Texas. So the banks didn't want to they'd much rather give you a loan on a commercial property that was generating income. Your deposits were then from the business, but also for your savings and all that stuff was also going to the bank. So they were able to build fees and checking accounts and all of the extra things they make money off of. This wasn't in the bank's best interest, but the capital they had was to put it in this asset. So you're talking about starting this career in 2004 yeah. era. Yeah. So what was that like in the run-up to the great financial crisis, and, and how did your career trajectory and path change? Yeah. From that? So we say ten thousand bucks. Uh, remember the wall in eighteen months. We turned that at one point eight. So we just in 2004 going into 2005 hit the market really hard really fast 16 hour work days just grinding getting after it and then uh when 2008 happened you know our father-in-law was our mentor he was like hey they're doing no docking loans we've seen this before it's about to pop guys so we got out and we were ready to buy things up so 2008 happened we were knocking on the fda Door. We thought this was going to be like the RTC day, up savings alone situation. We're going to get it. And the tr Troubled Asset Relief Program 
kicked in where she had bailed out the banks at that time and let every bank take time to liquidate their assets. And so what happened was is California, Phoenix, Las, Las Vegas, all these places, real estate values were just crashing. Everybody came to Texas because of work. So Texas values just held constant. There wasn't any bad loans. Just nobody was enforced to sell. So commercial stuff was different, but residential acreage and all things we were doing, it just, it held solid. So we still did deals, kind of kept an eye on things, uh, did deals. But then 2011 was popping around the corner. And 2011 uh, was when the oil and gas shell boom happened in our backyard. The Eagleford shell was discovered. And it was discovered after the bar, the bar did, you know, and the gas play was going on. So we had an office that was good at collecting bills and making payments and doing all the things and real estate things. And so the oil, if you showed up, you could make several hundreds of thousands of dollars by just So we went down there and oil companies were like, well, if you can get us this right away, this pipeline will pay you this money. And if you can get this guy to do these rig up and rig downs, we'll pay him this much money. And so we kind of used our real estate office as a incubator for oil field service companies. And so we got into the saltwater disposal business. We got a pipeline business, the rig up, rig down business. And we just told these guys who are really good to do it, to just do what you're good at doing. We'll take care of all the headaches, all the office stuff. We'll fund you. We get our money back. We're 50-50 partners. High five. And we did that successfully 14 times with the largest company that we made the most money off of that did the best was uh, our saltwater disposal company. That was a, that was a very unique opportunity there. We did very well with that. But again, what, how that opportunity presented itself was real simple. Everybody's focused on oil. Everybody's focused on gas. So hydraulic fracturing was new. So it was new to everybody. But people were getting away with where's all this water going to go? There's three things that go in, that come out of the ground: oil, gas, and 65 million year old saltwater stuff. And you're like, what are you going to do with millions? Millions and millions of gallons or barrels of this water. Nobody had a clue. And nobody knew. There was trucks everywhere trying to figure out what to do with it. So we looked at oil, we looked at the gas, and we said, man, we're not petroleum engineers, we're not geologists. What do we know? We're going to lose our rear end. However, nobody knows about hydraulic fracturing. And so therefore, we don't need any experience because nobody's dealt with it. We're all dealing with it at the same time. So we're, we're just as experienced experts at that. So that's what we did is we became experts at injecting water into formations and, uh, and knowing more than what other people would know. And then we went and picked the locations, use our real estate company to do that. And uh, we did very, 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 very fast. We, that's what we were good at. We, were, we saw an opportunity. There was a problem. What the solution was was finding the location and having a permit from the railroad commission that would allow you to inject water into that ground. And then a safe you know, safe spot. So we basically went and got those locations, got those permits, and we were teed up, ready to go. And people would pay us for our permits, our locations, and keep a royalty. And then we got into, then we got further up the food chain where the oil and gas companies were saying, why don't we like you? Why don't you guys build the facilities? So then we built our own and then we sold them and, and just kind of, we were just feeling a need, always feeling a need. And we just saw that that opportunity was uh, there was a massive demand, a massive need. You guys are like the uh, guys in the gold rush selling shovels. Very similar. Very, very similar. Exactly. Yeah. And that 
works. I mean, you know, we should have, if we'd have known what we know today, we should have been leasing the land for the oil and gas group at all if we were so early. And we knew where the locations were based off of the water and geology as much as good as most. We just, yeah, I think we, uh, not many times have we ever been intimidated, but that one we really didn't. We, um, so interestingly enough, like I asked you about the Ocean 08 and how that affected things, we had a similar situation, granted different factors in play here, but oil prices going to, to nothing in 2015, 2016. Yeah. What did that look like and, and did that push you back towards land or? Well, I'll give you so like, like we, um, our first private equity yield in 2018 and two weeks later, oil was 126 a barrel. And Raymond James just came out and said it's going to be $200 a barrel. And everybody's going crazy. And very and things are kind of hot. You know, we're making 500 grand a month in oil sales. This is hot. So we ended up selling and closing our deal. Two weeks after we closed, a uh, majority of our company uh, to a private equity group, it went to, it dropped. And it went August 2014. And it, it went all the way down. But, you know, we wrote it with our partners, we wrote it through the disposal company that survived both downturns and it's still alive today. And it wasn't because we're super smart. It wasn't because we did something special. We just entrepreneurially grinded it out. And we had people that, uh, you know, we just the organization ran very well. We had very good. We were very good. We were very good workers, and the organization didn't leave any mistakes. And so, uh, being small and just out hustling everybody around you. If there was a way, way to make money, we were doing it. Selling snow cones, whatever. It so, experience that made me a better businessman. I think I went through. I would, this tour we're at today, if it wasn't for those absolutely difficult challenges of turning off, we pivoted into several oil field recycling opportunities that you know, we spent a lot of money to try to figure it out. People, this, that time was very people, you know, when my man sings just that the global business is six dollars so nothing you could do is going to save that business mm-hmm. and seeing people you know sabotage buy off your clients buy off your customers i mean just you know unbelievable the worst yeah so that was unique we saw it very well learned a lot but and it was kind of like going through Navy SEAL business boot camp, and you just graduated buds. And now, looking back at real estate, I was like, man, I made a lot of money in real estate. What the hell am I doing? Beats wall this oil gas space. I mean, it's like, that's like walking into dermatology and just putting some ointment on things. It just fixes everything. You're just like, this is a walk in the park. So we got back to our real estate roots of being from real estate company run and found a couple of ways every year 
sector, but we never really uh, shut it down. Thank God. You kind of shifted focus back to that full time, and and what was the trigger for that? Curiously enough, I know obviously yeah. oil being being where it was doesn't doesn't help things. Well, when we, went, when we made it through, and the oil picked up in the Permian Basin, we took off. We went and did the same thing there. We gathered a whole bunch of land and bought a bunch of water rights and sold water and did disposal wells and all those things. Uh, and I just kind of got a feeling. I mean, this business oil is sixty dollars a barrel. It's it's doing well. Uh, if I run this business, I'm in Midland Monday through Friday, and I'm in West Odessa, I'm in New Mexico, and I'm like, if I do this business right, this company's going to do well and go public. But kids were getting big, and my oldest was at her eighth grade formal dance, and I saw her all dressed up like a pretty lady, and I said, oh man what I'm supposed to do, I'm going to be in Midland Monday through Friday for four years. How much is it going to be worth to me to say, wish I could have seen you Monday or had dinner with you on Wednesday night at home? And so, so I said, you know, this is that some God's telling me something and I need to pay attention to it. And I said, guys, I'm good. I had an opportunity to take some chips off the table. So I did. did and I went home and, and then I just took my day and kind of did a little reboot on just like, you know, what is it we should do? Sat at the dining room table, drove my wife insane. You know? She was like, you got to get out of here. And uh, so that was a good checkpoint for us, really a family checkpoint of, you know, you get this one opportunity in life, how much is it worth it to you? And uh, we were fortunate to be able to just say, let's just do one or two land deals and we'll figure it out. And that's really well, came back and said, let's just do one or two land deals. Let's look at sitting down and figuring that. So you're back to your roots now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and, well, back to just doing what we do before I know it. I'm already in a whole bunch of other crazy crap. And so uh, I'm still constantly fighting, trying to grow intellectually and examine opportunities, but also to not let the business drive the family, let the family drive the business. That's That's the hardest struggle you know is it yeah i think for anyone who's driven that's just that's a struggle you can probably relate to right yeah yeah and, yeah it's, you know we are have a very unique skill set we have a talent for learning of taking opportunity really fast and turning it into deposits and so you can't turn that instinct off it just it exists whether you're at the coffee shop whether you're real estate or, or oil and gas or you're an rv park or whatever geez, this is what we do. And, uh, and it's fun. It's fun. It's fun to do that in real estate because real estate is just so much more secure. No one gas space. We had a hole in the ground and nobody could verify. Kind of like, right, I think I can, I can understand this if I get it wrong. If I didn't do my homework, it's my fault. And that's kind of where we like to play is where everything's on, on our shoulders. Right. You're not waiting for a geologist to tell you if there's stuff in the ground or no, I mean, so much so experts. look at an RV pad and, or look at a commercial building. Go look at it. Just go look at what's on the street, what's next door. Just get off your, do your job. Where oil and gas, I mean, there's a lot of reliance on everything else. And a lot of oil down there. Can you get it out of the ground? I mean, that's a, that's, that's a very unique trick. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious. When you came back to kind of doing land deals and, and restarting the, the real estate company, did land feel easy to you all of a sudden? It, it did, again, but it was also a different time. Land, you 
You know, we used to, we could buy land for $1,000 an acre, $2,000 an acre, and sell it for six, you know, by, by the slice. Well, now it's back, and you can buy it for 4000 an acre, but you can only sell it for eight, so you're only doubling your money, three times your money. And so you're kind of like, you know, can you get used to these new prices? You know what is too much, because we used to know it very well, because we used to be very much more proactive. So you had to adjust and grow at times, and then those double-your-money deals got down to one and a half times now. You're not, you're not two times, and so you're like, uh, margins are getting thinner and thinner. <laughs> and so... Um, so there was definitely some updating that needed to be done, uh, but still felt safe with the investments because we just knew the area. You know, Earl says it's a local game. you got to know. Uh, yeah, there's some adjustment there, but, but it did seem small, seemed easy, kept low overhead. I mean, you see operators or whatever do in your entire life to now having just a few employees in real estate and what things are selling for. And then there's the whole technology growth. Now you have Zillow and you've got, you know, realtor.com things that you can look on your phone and see what the house next door sold for. Before we had to go to the county records and feel like I'm a hundred thousand years old, but dig through like the records and look at the deed of trust to find out what the loan was for. You know, and so I go to the tax records or the ledgers to see what the taxes were being paid. Technology with our old school investigative experience, really just put all of that on, on steroids. And it was very fortunate. And so I'm curious, you know, land is still a big part of what you do now, but I know that's evolved into a whole host of things, right? RV parks most recently. Yeah. Curious kind of how you see that, that landscape and what's pushed you into still in the real different um, more operationally intensive. It's got a whole lot more things going with it. Yeah, I think so. Land's good if you can get it at the right financing point, right? I mean, and with land not being made anymore, and everybody's migrating to Texas, you know, then you're like, okay, I got to it's supply to down in value just may not go up a lot. So then you get it to cash flow. Anyway, cash flow is tough. So maybe you cut it lower your basis and then you keep the rest. But then you get into the mobile home communities. You get into these other options here where now you're generating some good cash flow, you know, two, three, four times what your debt is. And you're keeping a whole bunch of acreage going forward. Now it starts to make a lot, a lot of sense really, really fast. But uh, so land's great. It, but what we've learned is, is there's still a lot of land out there. What this is, is uh, things are political, things are economical. You know, everything because of the internet, and everything is so much faster than it used to be. So declines in values are extremely fast. You know, uh, increases in values are extremely fast. So everything we do is connected and is faster. So. With that being said, like I think you got to be careful about making sure that you're in the right area where people are going to be. You can't, you don't have to be right 20 years down the road. You should be right one or two years and not get caught with exposure and be able to ride that wave. So it's a blend of being fiscally conservative, but also you know, just making sure you're not overpaying for something because it takes a while to get back. So, to RV parks a little bit more, I know you've 
RV parks, yep. developed RV parks. What has the kind of difference or tipping point been between the buy, buy versus build? And, and how have you gotten that development experience and, and gone through that? So I uh, love RV parks. Probably one of my, it's literally my favorite real estate investment, land investment I've ever made or done. They're not easy, but they're, if you do it right and you do your homework and you put in the effort, it has the absolute best reward by far out of any real estate. I don't care what anybody says unless you, unless you're getting into minerals and that's a whole different ballgame. Yeah, we already, that's different numbers. Uh, but just from a, an everyday person's ability to explore an area, look at an area, see if it makes sense, an existing one, or build one out themselves. Anybody can do it. It's not rocket science. Anybody can do it. You can YouTube it all and figure this out. And there's almost no way you're going to just a So the better of a job you do, make the faster returns are made. The crummier job you do, or the is undisciplined you may be, it may waste a lot of money. It's going to take you longer to get it back. It's going to come. It's just going to take 10, 15 years. Mm -hmm. So I love that aspect where it's just a, it's a level, but just who's really grinding and getting it done. And so, but RVs, uh, COVID kind of exposed us to RVs. You know, we saw everybody getting, everybody getting excited about, you know, being in all these convinced us to do RVs because of the supply chains of build to rent communities, apartment complexes, windows, doors, shingles, mini splits, everything. RVs, I didn't have any of the supply, the meter boxes, but again, we could that out. So that kind of pushed us to where it was like, and we're coming into a recession. What can generate cash flow right away? What can I have that covers the bills? And what can be an affordable housing or economic collapse, depression type situation that will still work? And how fast is it going to take me to finish this project compared to other projects? And so if I think there's 12 months of good runway, how much can I get done in 12 months? I can't get very far in apartment complex. I can't get very far in building a park. I can get there. I can feel comfortable. And I want to change in the future. I want to build an apartment complex. So that was uh, just COVID supply. Supply chain economy kind of led us into where we felt like this was where we would spend our time. So a really interesting point you make there that I don't think a lot of people will necessarily think about an RV park as affordable housing option. It is, it is. And I would say the RV parks of the back in the day of Cousin Eddie, you know, showing up and you're, there's a lot of Cousin Eddies out there. There is. And if you get in the affordable housing sector, you're going to deal with some of that. You know, I mean, it's... Uh, there's a reason why not everybody does it because nobody wants to deal with that, you know. And, but I would say, you know, doing a good quality product though, offering, you know, get in an RV, get in one, and go try to stay somewhere. And about not being from that space is you're going to recognize several things of inconveniences and things that you don't like. You may not like the neighbor RV's Rottweiler. Okay, you may not like that your gravel. And you're sitting on gravel, so every time it chews and gets in your RV, you may want to take a full-size bath or shower. Simple things. You may hate to walk to go do your washer. You hate to go do the laundromat because there's a weirdo in the laundromat that's looking at you all weird. You know, so there's all these small things that 
the older we've gotten, everything's about convenience. The reason you got the iPhone is because convenient. It, it pretty much sold the flashlight when they put the flashlight app on. It's convenient. Why, why do you buy a flashlight when you have it on your phone? I still remember the day when I downloaded the flashlight app yeah. on my first iPhone. Like it was the most mind blowing app experience of all time. Absolutely. And they got levels and all kinds of things. And then you now you got cameras. So like again, just so when you start thinking of building value, you gotta think of conveniences first. And and in real estate, it's not that hard to make something convenient. You know, it's just you know, try to find somebody who gets very irritated and somebody that gets annoyed really fast and let that person be your songbird about what is wrong, what's probably what the opportunity is to fix. And uh, so RV parks are like that. There's been no innovation in the space. Assisted living places are like that. There's a lot of opportunity still in the growth and development of technology and conveniences in spaces that has never been applied. So RVs looked that way for us because I said, man, I, the RV people are great people. They're very resilient. You cannot RV without knowing to fix stuff. Things break. And, but that doesn't mean that on a campground or a Walmart parking lot, that means that they would love to have a pavered backyard with landscaping, nice patio furniture, a big screen TV and a gas grill. Like that's where I want to spend my evening cooking. Why does an RV guy not want to spend his time there? You know why? Because it doesn't exist. So how much does it cost me to really put in a really class A backyard? And then not only that, that this person can enjoy if it's long-term or affordable. When COVID happened, you know, you didn't really like being on the second floor of the apartment complex with people coughing above you and beneath you, did you? You didn't like them touching the same handrail all the way up to your second floor door either. People wanted to be on their own square pad of dirt. And that's why RVs exploded during COVID. And I tell you what, that exposed a little, little bit of human nature to me that I think spots done right and treated with the right amount of respect with solving those modern inconveniences will absolutely outperform any multifamily rental long-term component by far. I'll keep the receipts on that one. Yeah, that's what I would do. That's what I would do. It's, it's where I got a little five pound winter dog. You know, it's going to be a lot better to have him in the yard on some space that is very easy to versus having to walk down three flights of stairs. Right? So, again, just small modern conveniences. Well, and I think you're one of the first people in the way that you do. Not that you revere them in any crazy way necessarily, but that's of they really don't deserve a lesser level of convenience or service. They want the same things that anybody else wants in a dwelling. I think a lot of people overlook that when they think about RV parks. They think about a class of person and a class of amenity level that just every single RV person is, is one. And I mean, I'll take an RV person any day that we go to Beverly Hills Housewives. <laughs> I mean, even have more fun with it, a lot less. And so I, that is what it is, is like, you know, if you as an investor, you know, what there's a massive demographic of people, 40 million RVs in the United States, there's 600,000 a year being sold. Like, just from a numbers game, there's more RVers than there are Beverly Hills housewives, right? And so, thank God for that. I know, I think it, <laughs> but I'm, I'm happy we got them. It entertains my wife. And, and so, but I would say that, you know, RVers have not been treated with respect because they've been looked at called Cousin Eddie, but they're wonderful people. They are very resilient. 
but they still like nice things, but they don't need a Bentley. They just want a nice backyard. They want nice amenities. And so I think, I think it's a solution that is not real. It's a problem that easy solution that is not rocket science to solve. You're right. And I think uh, and you can't shortcut it. That's what a lot of people do is they get in this business and then you cut it short like, oh, well, they're happy. It's like, no, they're not happy. You, you just... You could have made them really happy, but you didn't finish the job because you got lazy. That's really what it boils down to most of these products. Yeah. You poured a slightly nice concrete slab, and now we've got nothing else. I have never been excited about sitting on a concrete slab. But patio for me, put in some shade, put in some landscaping, you know, put in a little bit of privacy. Just give me some simple, modern conveniences I get if I have $600,000. And so you think in this case, right, like I'm sure plenty of people would say, where do you get your money back on the other side? But you're saying by making somebody really happy as opposed to just plain happy, you're going you're gonna to be better off in the long run anyways. I just think, again, there's so many things that I've been able to, to, I mean, you don't get the benefits of owning the real estate. You don't get the benefits of generating income on your RV side. If I, if I buy a beach house in Florida, I can air it can be RBO, I can run a lab. That's all just recent years, right? So, but I mean, like, why does it have privilege that benefit? I mean, if you try to book an RV site on the ocean uh, this summer, you can't get one. And so that means that there's a lot of demand for that. So if you had a quality RV spot and you wanted to buy one, why couldn't you buy one? Because nobody's selling them. Nobody built, nobody built a quality one and nobody's willing to sell them. So that's a wonderful opportunity investment to take the same thing in a different space or same industry, just different product and put it into this type of product. And it would translate extremely well. I think there's a lot of room to grow in the space. Uh, um, this is a lot. And I think that there's just the numbers for this. There's probably seven different layers of making, making money in the RV space, at least seven. And it can go from the highly transient model Airbnb to hotel, the over to very boutique, you know, four seasons model, a little bit quieter, but more long term ownership front of the deal. And then there's the third where you're now you're getting into a quality multifamily, horizontal multifamily product. And then you're getting into even more affordable housing or workforce housing that would be a quality product. And then you get into a transient model that is, is where it's. This is what people do. They're going to live three months in Texas. They're going to live for three months in Phoenix and three months in Nashville, maybe three months in Panama City. But because they can make money from the internet, they've got this entire, like they're, they're seeing the world. A lot of people go to school and educate them on the internet. So I just think that the COVID thing, I forgot to hit on that, changed the way people are willing to spend their time. So, it, so for us, very exciting. Probably going to be uh, very dedicated to this space for a while because I think there's so much that we can do here that it will take us 10 to 12 years to fill the need. That's how much it is. Awesome. Anything you want to leave us with, Jason? No, just uh, getting started on this whole podcast thing and we've learned it's a wonderful way to communicate to our people that lets us know where the thoughts are. We all listen to podcasts all the time. So super excited about just being able to communicate and see where this thing takes us. Don't take it too serious, but just have some fun with it. And uh, But uh, yeah, I think it's uh, looking forward to it. It's going to be a lot of fun. Awesome, man.
rigtigt til mig. Good stuff. Bring it out. Cool.